It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. We made this. Vampire Videos, where we continue to explore 100 years of vampires on film and television, one bite at a time. I'm Hugh McStay, and joining me as ever, fiddling spookily in my general direction from a safety of his dark, dank, derelict estate, is Mr. Dan Owen. Hi Dan, how are you? <laughs> Hello, what does fiddling spookily mean? Um, well not... Dan, that's just that's for the audience <laughs> to decide what that means, I don't want to, to commit. You, could, you should let me fiddle you know, by myself in my estate if I choose to, it's entirely down it's, to me. Look, it's a, it's a perfectly reasonable <laughs> hobby, I don't think anyone should criticise you for it. It just some things it can be a bit intense, just a bit intense. I should stop listening as a hobby in my CV I think, it doesn't go down well. <laughs> Prospective employers. So, thank you, Hugh. Violin player tends to be the one that they prefer. Well, what was that voice to you from the podcast? Hit? We haven't even introduced our yeah, guest. You've, well, you've left look... it open again, Hugh. You don't have to invite me in. Can't believe it. You need to nail it down, remember. I, I've said to you before, we need to get an assistant in for this sort of thing. I don't have the time in my day for that kind <laughs> okay. of admin, Dan. It's too much. Okay, we better crack on because the guest is keen to talk, it sounds like. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this week, uh, Hugh, we have... Uh, Werner Herzog's 1979 Nosferatu the Vampire, a remake of F.W. Murnau's 1922 silent classic, now starring Klaus Kinski as Count Dracula, and an impossibly young Reno Gans as Jonathan Harker. At midnight, all sorts of evil spirits are set loose. People disappear without a trace. Last night, after a tiresome journey, I finally reached my destination, the castle of Count Dracula. Yes, excellent. I'm very excited about this one. Uh, so I was going to say, let's open the podcast, but let's let's just crack open a bit more to see who's inside. It's writer, podcaster, and critic extraordinaire, Mr. Darren Mooney, making a second appearance here on Vampire Videos. Hi, Darren. How are you doing, sir? I'm grand. Now, in my defence, this is the same casket that was used back in 1922. That's why it wasn't sealed properly. <laughs> yeah. Perfectly fair. Perfectly fair. Uh, how you been getting on, my friend? I'm good. How's life, guys? Good. Not Very bad good. at all. Yeah. 
Anne and I are continuing to excavate as many graves of vampire cinema as we possibly can. Are you loading them off a boat in the middle of night in a really impressive long shot, um, long take? The two of you just driving a boat up into the middle of the the kind of the city and and loading off coffins. Oh, so you have been following us then. You've been watching, following out my my Twitter feed then because I do like to keep people updated with what we're doing. That's good. I I mean, I think to be fair, the photography was very impressive. Uh, You know, I mean, like the symmetry of the shot was quite impressive. If you are going to be loading coffins off a boat in the middle of the night uh, out of a canal and everybody should hope to look as good as you do thank you well, that's a real sort of like shot in the arm to the rest of my weekend so thanks very much for that i really appreciate it so yes we should we should go on a little bit further with the listeners and let them know that we are of course speaking in reference as dan said to nosferatu the vampire uh werner herzog's 1979 classic uh, now dan we've had you on before so we've already captured your vampire diary so if you don't mind what i'll do is i'll give you a little bit of a, a preamble a little bit of chat about this before we uh, dig into the conversation if that's all right yeah so uh this film was a bit of a, a passion project for director bernard Herzog. um he said in a 1998 interview that he felt the original nosferatu uh, from 1922 was the greatest german film of all time i've not seen enough german cinema to comment but if, if bernard Herzog <laughs> says that's the case i'm going to agree with him that's fine <laughs> most of this film uh, was shot in delft in the netherlands uh with some scenes shot in Scheidhem which is, uh, I think it's quite nearby, because the authorities in Telf refused to allow Werner Herzog to unleash 11,000 rats into the streets. So, <laughs> understandable. I think that's a fair pushback. wonder why, Chief. What's the big problem with that? Yeah. Well, listen, not to bury the lead, but more on those rats later, OK? But I've got things to say about those rats. Um, so, yeah, Herzog had apparently intended originally to film this in Transylvania, <laughs> uh, but he was refused permission by the then Romanian government under the control of communist dictator Nikolai Koshiko, which, again, uh, you know, Herzog... Herzog is one of those directors who's just he's got a reputation of being a bit crazy all the time isn't he? he's just got one of those uh, one of those reputations around the world so I can understand why you maybe would want to have done something in the original Transylvania where the, the film should have been set give it that kind of uh, authentic flavour obviously yeah 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 and so uh, whilst the film is a remake of Nosferatu Herzog has restored the original names of the characters uh, and he did this apparently the day that the copyright on Dracula expired <laughs> I like to imagine him just sort of, he's got the script ready to go and he's just sort of hovering over it with his pen just waiting to scrub out the names control F control C <laughs> in the late 70s how can you do that I'm typewriter <laughs> the tip X and the pen and tip yeah. X. <laughs> so this film would mark the second of five collaborations between Herzog and actor Klaus Kinski who's a bit of a controversial figure that I'm, I'm certain we'll speak more of as we go on uh, in fact um, actress Sylvia Crystal was the first choice for the role of Lucy uh, but turned it down because she didn't want to work with Kinski who I think had a reputation at the time for being a little bit we'll say the word we'll use the word intense uh with his female co-stars but obviously there's a, a whole lot more going on there I, I was really surprised to find it was shot with a crew of only 16 people which yeah. apparently was just that german cinema in the 70s apparently that was just the norm they always worked with such small crews <laughs> yeah, which strange. is fascinating to me yeah well they'd all rotate in front of the camera was the thing that's the thing about like herzog <laughs> yeah. is that like, like there's a wonderful article by beverly walker from like sight and sound i think in like autumn 1978 and she was on set and i'm sure we'll talk about this in a moment for the translation of certain scenes into English Herzog was like by the way dress as a nun you're in this scene um, and it's like I don't act don't worry you'll, you'll figure it out it'll be perfect it'll be fine <laughs> like apparently like the production on these movies was so tight that it was like yep yeah, if you were on the movie you were in the movie you know well I mean just pick 
picking up what you said there, Darren. I mean, you're right. I mean, there was two versions of this film produced um, at the insistence of the production company: uh, an English language version and a German language version. And and scenes with dialogue had to be filmed twice, um, which is, I find absolutely fascinating. You know, that must have been some production to be on. Uh, and the actors were able to get dub in their own voices later, so they could still sort of be used in both versions of the film. But Herzog has said that he considers the German language version to be the sort of the authentic version of this movie. Um, I must confess, I watched the English language version. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have time to learn German before the uh, the podcast this week, so I do apologise. <laughs> <laughs> no Duolingo. <laughs> um, so, Darren, coming to you first of all, I mean, give me your thoughts on Nosferatu the Vampire. What, what's your general impressions of it? I mean, I, I, I love it. I think when you guys reached out and asked were there any vampire-related films I would love to talk about, I think I went heavy on all in on Nosferatu. I was like, I want to talk about Shadow of the Vampire, <laughs> and I want to talk about like the 90, you know, the 1979 remake directed by Werner Herzog. Do you want to talk about the 1922 version? Nah, 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 nah. Just give me the remakes and the and the co- making of comedy of it. Um, but no, I, I am a huge, huge fan of this movie. I think it's going to be a fascinating film to discuss. Um, I think it's beautiful. It looks gorgeous. The soundtrack it's amazing um the production design is fantastic its use of location is wonderful and i think not to maybe the signpost stuff we'll be talking about kind of later on or in a moment it's this wonderful moment for german cinema um you mentioned the fact that it was Uh shot simultaneously in english and german Uh, i believe that was in part because 20th century fox had signed on as distributors Uh, i believe they had a reputation in the late 70s as the most adventurous american studio i mean this was the same year that they were releasing alien and all that jazz um you know kind of like so you have a sense of like it being a dynamic interesting time in Hollywood and foreign producers being very interested in this wave of German cinema that's emerging Um, obviously you mentioned Herzog who's become this kind of icon of cinema arguably better known in front of the camera than behind it to a certain generation of cinephiles (laughs) Uh, I would like to see the child Um, but also you have at the same time you have Fassbinder uh, you have Wenders you have this kind of emergence of young talent in German cinema that's kind of vibrant that's making these passion projects and again you mentioned like the small production on this 16 people um the fact that this was made for 1.4 million dollars which yeah, even in yeah. 1979 was pocket change but was still the largest budget that herzog had been given to this point in his career this was his big blockbuster movie mm-hmm. and this was the one that they were going to take over to the united states and hope to market over there and i think it's it's fascinating because you mentioned that idea of of herzog talking about this as a passion project and talking about the 1922 nosferatu as like the greatest german movie ever made and i think if you're trying to understand what this movie is outside of just being a really good horror movie in its own right a mm-hmm. wonderful piece of cinema a very atmospheric uh, piece of cinema it is a movie that is in many ways trying to reach across time and to create a bridge between German expressionism uh, kind of Weimar Republic cinema and I think they call it the new kino uh, the new wave of German cinema in the 1970s it's trying to bridge the two elements and find something that unites them because you know again it's German cinema I don't want to be reductionist I am in no way an expert on German cinema but when you are talking about the 20th century in Germany there is obviously a very 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 big thing at the center of that that is inescapable that creates a gulf between what happened before it and what happened after it and I think that if you're trying to understand Nosferatu the 1979 version it is an attempt to create some sense of continuity and to create some sense of passage between it and I think at a very very high level what I absolutely adore about the movie um, is something that and have you guys talked about uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula yet or are you going to talk about it? Yeah. 
So Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula is fascinating because it's a movie that tries to recreate um, like how you would shoot that movie back <laughs> yeah. in the golden days of Hollywood, you know, through things like rear projection and props and models and scale and forced perspective and all these techniques, silhouettes, all this stuff that you used to do, which is how you made movies and to create a sense of like continuity and resurrecting uh -huh. necromancy of cinema you know the undead vampire you're resurrecting something that is immortal and something that goes back to the origins of cinema which is kind of again a nice metaphor <laughs> for the vampire what's really interesting about herzog's nosferatu is it is very much the opposite of that where it is a movie that is taking this classic iconic vampire story arguably the first vampire story ever translated into cinema uh -huh. on screen and rendering it through a prism of 1970s german cinema this is not a movie that is shot in the style of a silent film it is not a movie that is aping the conventions of it or using the cinematic language of it it is instead using the cinematic language of like 19th the 70s new wave german cinema you have a lot of long takes for example you have a lot of location yeah. work you have a very naturalistic kind of atmosphere there you have the camera kind of holding on shots and you have this kind of approach to, to filmmaking that is very much rooted in like new wave cinema, but is adapting something that is classic and archetypal and using the iconography of it, but the language of a more modern cinema. And you have the past and the future coexisting in the frame in a way that at once creates a continuity, but also creates a distance that is something... If this is a podcast about vampires and about vampires being immortal mm -hmm. and vampires lasting forever and vampires enduring as these objects across history, I think this is an essential film to discuss in that context because it is the past and the future coexisting, the past and the present coexisting uh, at the same time. That is why I love this movie so much. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. I mean, that's, that's the world that I kept coming away from when I was when I. I uh, watched it the other night. I've, I've actually seen it twice this week. I, I watched it the first time and I thought, I'm going to go back through it again because I feel like I, I wasn't taking in enough. To, I was too busy sort of just marvelling at it, you know, and what it looks like. Yeah, Dan, what were your kind of thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed this movie. We've obviously done Nosferatu, haven't we, Hugh? The, the, yeah, the yeah. original as our first ever episode. Um, and I think we, we always say that it was something to be admired, not so much enjoyed from a modern perspective. It's quite a difficult film to watch today. Yeah, I know. I know yeah, I know what you mean. Um, so I was interested to watch this one. I've never actually seen it before. And yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Cause I, I liked that it was faithful to the 1922 version, but obviously just kind of like flesh things out a lot more. Uh, obviously, it, yeah. it did kind of do that, obviously, with, yeah, with, with use of dialogue and things and things had moved on quite a bit by the late 70s from 1922 <laughs> and i liked it was a bit more of a dracula story wasn't it really you know there's, there's a lot more you know obviously the characters all have been named back to lucy harker and johnson harker i was a bit upset actually there was not um count orlock i actually <laughs> would have preferred that i was i was a bit upset with it was dracula i was like oh no oh, dracula I, I, I like count orlock and i, I like that name <laughs> you know the fans of the nosferatu cinematic universe are going to be furious actually when they when they get their I hands mean, on this all the nosferatu fans were up in arms why are they changing the canon you know the message boards were just crazy over this yeah <laughs> it's a bit of a strange decision <laughs> even the title is a bit odd isn't it really nosferatu the vampire but doesn't nosferatu mean vampire yeah. essentially so it's vampire the vampire it's a bit weird um but i i really liked how obviously you could do a lot more in 1979 with this story. Uh, I like though how it was very faithful to the original in, t in terms of even he kind of replicates certain um, moments from the 22 version really really well. 
and Klaus Kinski is great in the role. Not not as good as Max Schreck, I don't think. I kind of preferred him. He's a bit more eerie to me. But obviously, there's a bit more of, of a performance here, isn't there, with Kinski, which is which is good. And yeah, I mean, there's not a lot to dislike, really, was it? Was it really? And I even liked how they could obviously just do a lot more with some of the characters. So Lucy gets quite a sizable role, doesn't she? Especially towards the end, which is quite good to see as well. So we'll get, maybe get into that when we t- talk about the performances in particular. But yeah, overall, I really liked it I love the atmosphere and the vibe it has yeah, as well really yeah and I think we're all kind of singing off a similar hymn sheet here gents because I, I'm the same just gorgeous film absolutely gorgeous and listen I, I appreciate our recordings don't go out in the chronological order in which we record them uh, but I'll be honest then we've had a bit of a run of what I would describe as um, interesting films you know where I could, I could certainly find the best things in them maybe the, <laughs> the, the overall film wasn't particularly great um, and we've had a bit of run yeah. a run of those recently but here was a film that I could just oh you can almost bathe in it it's that good you know and let's say I, I watched this uh, three nights ago I think I watched this three nights ago and then watched it again the next night again because I was just so sort of flabbergasted by it similarly to you Dan I, I hadn't seen this before um, or I'd seen bits of it but not you know I, I was obviously misremembering what I'd seen and um, I absolutely love it I love the way that it kind of mirrors up with some shots in Nosferatu but it's very much doing its own thing and I, I think Shadow of the Vampire will be an interesting film to revisit having view, having watched this because I think there's I think there's a lot more of um a lot more of Kinski in Defoe's portrayal than there was of Max Schreck, which and again I wish I'd I actually wish I'd seen this in the opposite order now because I think there's some fascinating crossover there. Um and as you said, it, it, it's a much more enjoyable experience than Murnau's Tale, but that's because of, you know, it's kind of it's imbued with a lot of sort of modern trappings that help the audience connect to it, not least of which is the dialogue. Um the cinematography is gorgeous. I mean you know that <laughs> the opening where uh, Harker is making his way to the castle, and he's kind of walking through this gorgeous forest, and he's you know walking across the you know the rivers and the waterfalls. It is it's like he's stepping through into some sort of like like a like a dark fairy tale coming to life all around him. You know the the idea of the, the castle itself as well, almost kind of transforming from this sort of derelict mess in the daylight to this gorgeous gothic estate in the shadows. That's an amazing idea, and I'm, I'm surprised we've not seen that really in, in, in more vampire films because it's such a clever uh, notion. The last thing I'd like to say is that Kinski is just fascinating from the second he steps on screen. I, I think I disagree with you, Dan. I think I prefer this to, to Shrek's performance, but they're, they're very different, though. I mean, th- th- this, I was going to say this Orlok, so <laughs> let me rephrase. Uh, this Nosferatu, he's a much more haunted and, and sort of reserved creature, and, you know, you really get this impression that he's constantly... There's like a weariness and a sadness in him uh, that kind of infects what he's doing, and and like I said, I think that's what I mean when I when I think of Willem Dafoe's portrayal of of uh, Shrek in Shadow of the Vampire. I feel that bleeding into that performance quite a lot, and yeah, just a, a fascinating creation and a really fascinating film. Just sticking with with Kinski's. Uh, performance, uh, Darren. What, what do you think of him in the role? I mean, what do you? Th- I mean, obviously, Kinski himself is a, a difficult person. We will talk about uh, you know those issues, but I mean, as a performance, so what do you make of this? I mean, he is mesmerizing. Like again, you you can see why. And and again, this is one of those artists and artists artists and art situations where you are separating the artist from the art that they create, or whether or not that's possible. But you can see why Herzog was at once kind of like drawn to him but also at times like they wanted to murder each other. <laughs> you can see that kind of push yeah. and pull there where he is this presence that is, and this is one of those things that is difficult to talk about because there's a tendency, 
when you talk about people being difficult to assume that you're talking about something like, say, Stanley Kubrick or David Fincher mm. demanding more takes from an actor. Um, and difficult is to treat it as a code word for that. It's just, no, Klaus Kinski was a genuinely unpleasant person. Um, and he was a genuinely difficult yeah. person to work with. Um, and he was obviously, um, we will talk about the other stuff, but a very difficult person to live with as well, by all accounts. And I think that, you know, can you separate that from the art? Because so much of what makes him compelling on screen is the fact that there's nobody like him and that there's no energy like the energy that he gives you um, and whether or not you can separate that from all the stuff that's happening off screen is, is a question I don't have an answer to but I find myself thinking about a lot and I think that energy is is here he is incredibly compelling to watch he is this figure that is just like fascinating and obviously the makeup design is is fantastic um, it is a wonderful update um, oh, yeah. or kind of like representation of the classic 1922 design his physicality his movement the way that he holds himself in the frame he's always really really interesting just to watch um even when he's standing still in shots because again he's not always the most mobile of characters yeah but you're always intensely studying him your eye is always drawn to him and i think that is is absolutely incredible and haunting i don't know if i consider him better than shrek um if only because like shrek invented an archetype um <laughs> yeah and I feel like when you're weighing that against it, you that kind of gives it to Shrek by default. However good Kinski is, however good Oldman is, however good Defoe is, um, they're all kind of existing in the shadow of the vampire, if you will pardon the reference here. <laughs> but I, I do think he is phenomenal here, and I do think he's a large part of why the film works, and I do think you understand intrinsically why Herzog was drawn to him, yeah. um, setting aside all of the baggage that comes with him, just as a filmmaker. Um, and, and again, like Herzog, as you alluded to, is a director who has a reputation for being himself quite extreme and, and not necessarily a director who and again people generally talk fondly about their experience of working with Herzog I mean like even in that BFI piece or that sight and sound piece like Walker talks about how he would reward cast and crew members who had done well by giving them Toblerones um, that was like his, his way of kind of giving approval on set he'd give out to them for complaining about getting bitten by fleas from the rats that he had insisted on unleashing on the set um, so like you can see why these two creative talents were drawn to one another without creating an equivalence between Herzog being a difficult man to work with on set and Kinski being everything that people have suggested that Kinski was off on an offset as well. But you can see the push and pull there, I think. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. 
you mentioned the sort of the the makeup effects of, of for Kinski and his transformation, and I was reading it had to spend up to four hours a day in makeup transforming into yeah. Nosferatu. <laughs> now Kinski is just he's known for these like wild temper tantrums. Um, Herzog said the famous the chef that the rats that appear in the film were better behaved than Kinski was. Um, <laughs> so it kind of gives you, you know kind of gives you a baseline for what they were dealing with. I've apparently had a really good relationship with the makeup artist uh, Ricky Crook, and we've said to be really patient and well behaved. I don't know, maybe Ricky Crook was just a terrifying individual, even more so than uh, than Kinski. Um, but yeah, no, I I agree with you. It's like the the, uh, the makeup effects are almost like um, beside the point. It's the, it's the physicality of the performance that I think that sticks with you. What do you think, Dan? I love the makeup. I love these stances that both versions of uh, the Count has. You know that kind of classic kind of use of the hands it's all very posed isn't it and really cool it works really well for obviously silent films but they kind of bring that across for this as well uh so i love all that i like um love his teeth actually i was fascinated by his teeth <laughs> yeah yeah, um, yeah. but like a rat yeah like a rat yeah, like a king rat isn't he essentially <laughs> but I, I did wonder why uh johnson harker didn't mention the teeth you know i suppose he's too polite at dinner isn't he but i was thinking you know they're very obvious are they i'd be like oh what's uh what's going on with the teeth <laughs> It was. Uh, Jonathan just really wants that house. Like Jonathan's got his eye on the prize. He's like, look, if this dude has some weird dental stuff going on, I'm not going to ask any questions. I just want the house, baby. Yeah, yeah. Be a bit creeped out by the, the length of the fingernails, but I, you know, I couldn't ignore that. But the teeth, I'd, I'd be, I'd be asking questions myself. Can I ask but... a question, Dan? If if you if you went to dinner at some reclusive millionaire's house and uh, you were sitting with a pair of fangs, and would you bring it up? Would you ask him? You're, like, um, you're, you're not a vampire, are you? Are you a vampire? <laughs> Suppose again, Hugh. This is another another example of a movie where maybe vampires aren't common knowledge. Maybe. Oh yeah. So he would yeah, say he wouldn't have thought that. He, maybe he would have thought, oh, it's some kind of genetic thing. It's just <laughs> a, a poor man, you know, who's just uh, stricken by bad teeth. I did think it was a bit odd, um, especially the, the the moment though when he comes into his bedroom right. and it's like a bit of a recreation of a, of the scene from the twenty two version. Yeah. I don't think yeah. it quite works in this in this version because it, in the silent version you can kind of buy the weird reaction, can't you? That you, you just kind of sit up in your bed and just you wouldn't really react or try and run away or anything. It kind of works in a silent film but in this movie I was thinking oh why doesn't he just like do something he he seemed to be just given up to it I suppose he's been hypnotised possibly <laughs> maybe that was a, what was happening there I don't know but a few little things were here and there where I thought it's like an updated version of the film, but there's still a few things where they kind of just accept that it's spookier to just go with what the silent film did, even though it's not really accurate to how people behave. I mean, there is like a dream logic kind of to the movie that I find fascinating. And I think kind of Hugh pointed that moment where the castle like literally changes uh, between day and night or where it materializes out of the mist or the fact that like the gypsies. Um, and again, I believe that's something that Herzog, Herzog like kept adding stuff like on set filming because he liked working with gypsies he was like these people are awesome give them more to do but they, they're like the idea that the castle uh, doesn't actually exist it's something that exists inside the imagination of man and the sense in which you know this thing is kind of conjured up and it's a nightmare and again you you, you have that kind of connection between like Lucy during that sequence where he's attacked where Jonathan is attacked for example where she's having night terror simultaneously and the two of them are linked and you know again without getting into too many spoilers about the ending although I'm assuming that people have seen the movie before they're listening to the podcast but this this idea that you have that he lives on in Jonathan that like Nosferatu you know again there's this he talks about the curse of having to live forever and spoiler alert well he doesn't really have to worry about that in a literal sense uh, but he does live on in the closing moments as Jonathan kind of like rides off towards the horizon and again part of me is like Darren this is German cinema you're being very reductionist and cliche and hackneyed but I do think that there is something in the idea of this being 
being a movie about the darkness inside of man. Like one of the, you mentioned the fact that this is obviously a longer movie than the 1922 version. One of the big additions, um, at least you know, again, it's been a while since I've seen the 1922 version, but in my memory of it is the stuff about like the collapse of the local community, yeah, and the descent of the breakdown of social order. We mentioned the rats, like Herzog's like rat <laughs> motif and his obsession with rats and his obsession with plague. But like one of the things that happens in the movie that I think is quite thematically important is the idea that this vampire isn't just like hunting Lucy and Jonathan. Um, he's also also responsible for like the breakdown of the cohesion of society as a whole where it's society kind of you have like a plague spreading you have the breakdown of social order you have the moment at the end which i love where and again we'll talk about the ending maybe separately but we're like where the mayor's like you know arrest van elsie's like but well, we, we don't have a police force anymore well, <laughs> yeah. take him to the jail we, we don't have yeah. anybody manning the jail society this town has just so completely imploded that there is no civilization there is no governance there is no rule and i kind of read that or kind of like what I like about this movie is that it suggests that like and again the vampire is obviously vampires don't exist but the vampire is this manifestation of something more primal within us and so that dream logic that you mentioned where Jonathan kind of sees the figure in the bedroom coming to attack him and he is entranced and he doesn't move and he doesn't respond with violence and he doesn't fight back is kind of it, it's symbolic to me it's like it's like having a night terror it's like you wake up and you're paralyzed paralyzed and you're aware but you can't do anything because there's nothing there but you're still terrified yeah. of whatever it is so that 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 worked for me i think there but i, I do get the logic of yeah the strange bald man is in my room and he's moving <laughs> towards me make it stop yeah i look at things very black and white you see <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting I, I like all the talk about play because that's the main difference between uh count orlock as i'll still call him <laughs> and uh and count dracula because uh, Orlock represents, like you say, plague. Yeah, it's yeah. The fear of, of like in, infection and plague coming from a foreign land. Uh, whereas Dracula's more like a, he's more like a sexual competitor for the men almost, because he always yeah. goes after their fiancés, yeah. and, it, and it's more of a sex thing, isn't it, with Dracula? So I, I like the fact that even though this is kind of closer to Dracula than ever before, it still is keeping that plague subtext, which I really like about Nosferatu. Sorry, Dan. I'm now just. I, I, I apologize <laughs> for this, but I'm now imagining like the mayor walking in and finding Van Helsing coming down from the bedroom with a bloody stain taking a hammer and going, is this a sex thing? <laughs> yeah. Oh dear, a new, a new tagline for the movie as well. Is this a sex thing? <laughs> so listen, um, I did promise you earlier uh, some more saucy rat talk, so let's get to oh, it. Oh, let's go to yeah, it. I found, I found this so horrible. Watching the film, um, you know, and the rats are everywhere. And I don't think our let me let me rephrase that. I didn't think I had a rat phobia or a problem with rats, but after this film, oh, I, I feel ill uh, by the by the time we got to the end of the movie. Um, so I was reading that the uh, the production and the crew they, they found it really difficult to procure rats for the film. Yeah. Um. So eventually they sourced a large quantity from a scientific research facility, yep. which sounds like the setup for yeah. another film of like mutant rats have escaped. But but no, yeah. So the rats the rats were shipped to Holland, uh, and apparently a customs inspector. <laughs> when they opened the crate for inspection can you imagine the horror of that I, just, I can't get my head around it yep. and then and then the horror for the poor rats themselves because I mean by all accounts they were treated horrendously on set uh, animal rights activists were have alleged tons of ethical breaches about the way they were treated well, do you know the, th the thing about like the real like again like the thing about those lab rats that they're shipped do you know what colour lab rats are they're white all the rats that appear in the movie are grey yes Herzog uh -huh. arranged to have all the lab rats painted grey <laughs> well, 
<laughs> I, I, I was reading that they, they had to they tried to dye some of them so um they had a they had a dutch behavioral psychologist on set uh, martin tarp um he'd been hired due to his expertise with lab rats apparently now, that sounds like a really <laughs> niche subject to be an expert in but there we have it um so apparently he left the film after seeing how the animals were being treated and he said that some of the rats were submerged in boiling water for a few oh. seconds in order to aid the dye that was being applied to them uh, which resulted yeah. in like half of them dying so i mean like that was another sort of layer of this film i was just like oh god that's that's just so unpleasant and horrible and yeah but i think the rats and that sort of plague subplot add a lot to the film so i mean whilst i will never ever think that it's okay to treat animals in such a horrible way i mean it does create some really striking visuals as the film sort of moves towards its, its finale i think i mean again like that's the thing with with herzog i mean again arguably it's a thing with a lot of 70s auteurs but it's a particularly challenging thing with herzog where you have things like fitzcarraldo and stuff like that where you're like there's a point where film is great and all but you know maybe it's okay if some of the rats are white <laughs> um there is a point where it's like this is too much this is too far um and the cost of what you're doing is insane and i i do think yeah herzog is a particularly challenging director in that regard because you have all that stuff and again this is his like hollywood picture this is the one where he has more money than he's ever had before this is the one where he's operating as close to above board as it is possible for him to operate at this time and even then it's still as you said quite excessive and unnecessary <laughs> and unpleasant let's say uh, let's talk about some of the the other performances in the film because there are some really memorable uh characters i mean i'd like to start with isabella ajani's lucy she's got so much agency in this film it's nice yeah. to see that and i know Nosferatu was the same i mean realistically she you know that the the woman in, in Nosferatu is kind of the one who is ultimately responsible for his undoing but lucy's given a lot more to do here i mean there's even you know she even kind of gets to have a standoff with with Nosferatu uh, in the film you know where they, they kind of i find that that scene a bit odd but i do enjoy it but they're sort of pontificating each other like two sort of um <laughs> philosophy students where she's in the mirror and he's standing off screen <laughs> yeah but again that's that's very much like the darkness that resides in the heart of man you know kind of thing it has that kind of vibe to it where, again where i kind of dream logic-y european cinema in the late 1970s kind of go with it vibe <laughs> i didn't think she'd be a big part of it to be honest earlier on but um by the end she's becomes almost the, the lead <laughs> you could argue you know because jonathan harker kind of fades into the background a bit yeah yeah, and yeah. she takes over like a lot of the 70s movies that we've covered uh, a lot of the female characters especially in the hammer films we've done they're all kind of um pushed to one side aren't they by the men and disbelieved by the men when they when they say what's <laughs> happening and no one believes them um yeah, but, yeah and that happens here doesn't it and i was a bit disappointed at first i thought okay here we go another one of these women from the 70s uh, <laughs> but she actually takes matters into her own hands doesn't she and she goes off and she researches how to kill yeah. dracula and she sets a trap for him so, you know she has a you know, like you say a lot more agency so I, I really enjoyed that and i think that's an example of maybe how things were changing as we move into the 80s yeah and and i think it's um as much i mean we will talk about bruno gantz um his performance because i really enjoyed it I found myself captivated by uh by lucy in this film and again it's the second time i watched it more so because i think you're right dan for the first maybe 40 minutes of the film she really is the background character mm, where she yeah. also really does is faint or wake up <laughs> screaming in the night and it's like oh right okay but yeah once once harker actually returns he fades into the background and she kind of rises as very much the hero of the piece if there is a hero in this film and the way in which she takes Nosferatu uh, the way she destroys her defeats him in the end obviously is very similar to, to the original Nosferatu but there is that added layer of, of lust that comes from her as much as him I think in those final moments which I, I wasn't I wasn't kind of prepared for I thought as a really interesting decision it does feel very modern in how it's shot you mentioned those sequences of like uh, Harker going up to um, the castle and like how much of this movie is shot with handheld cameras and how modern it all looks and again how little set dressing they put on the streets uh -huh. and 
how they use relocations rather than sets. But I think that like Isabel Adjani looks like she's from a silent film. Yeah, yeah. Arguably even more than Klaus Kinski's uh, Dracula or Orlok. Watching the movie, all the other characters look like they're in a 1970s European film. But she somehow, and it may just be that her skin is so pale and her hair is so dark, but she does still almost look like she's rendered monochrome even before Dracula starts feeding on her. And there is a kind of interesting thing where she does feel, she feels a part from everything that's happening around her. She feels like she's not, she's at a remove from it. And again, you get that wonderful shot where she's wandering through the square. Again, shot from above um, in kind of wide shot where she's wandering through as everybody's dancing as the world falls apart. And you have this sense of Lucy as somebody who is, as much as Orlok or Dracula himself, apart from the world. Which I think makes sense in terms of, like you pointed out, that, that kind of like that philosophical debate sequence where it is a debate between the two of them almost. Where she is, she is the opposite of him rather than the the traditional dracula narrative where she is the beloved or the prize or the the bride of dracula she's almost the directly antagonistic kind of force to him which i find interesting and just speaking of uh bruno gans's harcourt i think bruno gans is always a a fascinating performer but here he's he's got that sort of intensity and determination and and i really enjoyed that what you the time you spend with him um you know in the build-up to you know to Nosferatu revealing his true sort of intentions and the dinner scene between uh, between Harker and Nosferatu as well I mean at this point Dan I think we must have seen what five or six iterations of yeah, that same scene yeah. but if I'm honest with you this this one I still found quite captivating and a lot of that is down to the uncomfortable that you feel radiating off Harker as Nosferatu sort of sits at the head of the table eyeing him I, I love that scene I'm, listen having watched it twice that's one of the scenes that really jumped out at me and I was surprised because I thought, well, I can't watch another version of this. But no, turns out I can. I'm okay with it. <laughs> and the fact that it, again, it's not it's not shot in a way that is like shot for shot recreating yeah, how that yeah. normally no. looks as well. Like it's it's shot more intimately. Uh, the lighting is a bit more naturalistic. Uh, the camera is moving. I think at that stage, it's in Herzog's hand, or at least it is when they're having conversation after dinner as well. It kind of it doesn't feel like that scene normally feels, which is very interesting because, as you said, you have watched like five or six of it over the course of this podcast, but. <laughs> Any cinema goer has seen in over the course of their life at least three or four versions of that scene play out. And none of them feel as intimate or as personal or as close as that one does, Uh, which I think is a a choice that speaks to it and kind of like, again, speaks to the strength of the film as a whole, maybe. I I really liked Bruno Gans in this this movie. Um, I think he's probably one of my favourite Jonathan Harkers in a strange way because you really do follow him from beginning to end, don't you, on his, on his journey to the castle. Because otherwise, in a lot of these movies we've watched to you, they kind of skip a lot of things, don't they? And it's very yeah, quick yeah, how yeah. he arrives yeah. and it's kind of dealt with very, uh, very fast. And then, you know, before you know it, it you know, Jonathan Harker's back in London. But you seem to spend a lot more time with him in this one, so I really kind of was on board with him. But that's why, for me, one of the slight flaws of the movie is that I didn't like how he was sidelined a little bit once he got back home. And it's nice that Lucy takes over. I'm pleased for her character and what that means for you know having a female character um, be more prominent. But um, I did think there was maybe a bit more of a balancing act that could have been done there because he really does just disappear almost, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit strange because he is like he is like the lead of the movie for for <laughs> the first like hour, I think. 
think. Uh, then he just melts away a little bit. Um, nice twist at the end with him, obviously. But um, brilliant guys. I don't even know he's in this movie, to be honest. He's obviously from Downfall, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Adolf Hitler. Yeah, from all the memes, kids. <laughs> I know you watched uh, Jonathan Demme's The Manchurian Candidate as well. He's fantastic in that. Like, again, it's, it's worth noting that like, this is European cinema was having a moment. Um, and this is the thing where 20th Century Fox were investing money in this and hoping that this would break out. And why this was shot simultaneously in English and German was because, like, these were real talents emerging at the end of the 70s. And there was a real sense of, is this going to break out of Europe? Is Europe going to be a new Hollywood? Is it going to have the kind of global reach? Because, like, uh, Grans, like, has this incredible run, if you go back through his IMDb, where he's just working constantly from, like, 1976 to 1979. And he is, like, this isn't even, like, his first English language movie. He did, like, The Boys from Brazil, the previous right, year yeah, as well, yeah. which was, I believe, it also a 20th Century Fox movie as well. Um, he did The American Friend, which is the Wim Wenders kind of movie as well, which is a Ripley uh, movie starring Dennis Hopper <laughs> as well. So you have this kind of sense of German cinema becoming internationalized and Gans being a figure in that happening at the same time, which I think is just kind of fascinating to watch because it's he kind of, as you said, downfall, he emerges. And I was a teenager when that came out and I'm like, where is this guy? Where did he come yeah, from? What yeah. was he up to? And I'm like, was he, was he like a Christoph Waltz figure where like Tarantino just like picked him out and was like <laughs> I am gonna make you like an English language star and you go back and instead it's like no no in the late 70s yeah. like at the moment where German cinema was bubbling to the surface Gans was like on the way to being he could probably have gone to Hollywood and had a reasonable career playing Bond villains <laughs> if he had chosen or if he decided that was what he wanted to do and I think I think he's really good here um, and I think he's fascinating to watch I think you're, you're right that he does kind of lose agency in the second half of the movie but I think that's kind of important to how the movie ends in that like I think what it's doing with Harker is kind of dependent on him not being the focus until you almost get to the end you're like oh what happened to Harker and the movie's <laughs> like well let us show you what happened to Harker um, I think like the, tr the magic trick of the movie is that kind of working in that way we can move on and talk about the end actually uh, but before we do I just wanted to mentioned I've got one more one more character that I really enjoyed uh, which is uh, Roland Topor's Renfield is he is just <laughs> insane you know I, I could easily buy that they just got some madman off the street to play that role because he's unnerving from the minute he appears on screen he's got that really creepy nervous laugh and really odd vocal intonation um, it's such a great performance it's really memorable even though he's not really in it all that much he's one of those characters that, that really stuck with me afterwards do you know I'm going to have to disagree with you Hugh, a little bit uh, do, you, do you agree with that as well do you Darren that he was good I didn't like him I I, re <laughs> I really liked him now again part of me is like part of me is like I wonder if your criticism is going to be my praise like the thing that you hate is the thing that I love but I, <laughs> yeah. I love I love that it's very obvious from the moment that like you know that Jonathan Harker shows up that this guy is completely round the bend <laughs> and that no good will come from this guy sending you to Transylvania to deal with this mysterious figure um, there is no situation where the guy sending you that direction acting like this is somebody you should trust um, but I do kind of again I think it plays to the weird dream logic of it and the weird nightmarishness and again that idea of like corruption and decay and the breakdown of social order because again by the time you reach the third act the entire town is acting like Renfield which I think is is important and I think is clever and I think works really well so I, I like I like Renfield being being kind of gonzo um, but I'm guessing you you don't <laughs> so 
character. I don't think he was terrible or anything, but uh, we've obviously seen a few different versions of Renfield, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, as we've mm-hmm. been doing the podcast, and uh, he, he probably ranks quite low for me because I just didn't think it was a very plausible way of sort of acting insane. It's a bit cartoonish for me with all the cackling, and I don't know. I, I just prefer a different take on it, to be honest. Oh, no, I didn't mind that. I quite, I quite enjoyed the over the top nature of it. <laughs> what do we think of the end of this movie? Because in some ways, it, it's kind of quite faithful to you know the end of Nosferatu, but in other ways, it, it's it's quite different. Dan, first of all, what do you make of this? Yeah, I, I like the ending because I, I thought I kind of knew where the movie was going. Obviously, thinking you know, and <laughs> we've seen the Nosferatu before and I've seen plenty of Dracula stories so now there's a part of your brain that's slightly checked out in terms of the story and you're more focused on the performances and and what's happening with the camera and the locations and all the kind of nuts and bolts of a movie a little bit sometimes with these films the story takes a bit of a backseat in my mind because I'm I'm not expecting big surprises or anything yeah then there's a few good surprises wasn't there at the end oh yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so uh, I especially liked how Van Helsing is arrested (laughs) for murdering somebody which is essentially what's happened isn't it you know because they don't really know he genuinely is a vampire etc and so that was quite uh amusing and um and also you know, like, like we've kind of uh, mentioned uh, jonathan harker at the end he's kind of caught the infection if you like isn't he and uh, he's yeah. now nosferatu as well and he's going to go off and maybe spread the plague somewhere else and so there could be a sequel and there was a sequel wasn't there, there was well. there was in venice wasn't there yeah. vampires in venice yeah, if, you, if you squint your eyes a little bit and look at it yeah there was kind of a sequel yeah <laughs> So I wasn't expecting either of those changes, and so that I did I did quite enjoy that and perked up quite a bit at the end. I I, I love the ending of this, and again, part of me is like, this is where I worry I'm being a reductionist. But you have this idea of this is an iconic German film, the 1922 kind of Nosferatu, and again, the idea of German expressionism being a product of the Weimar Republic, the the, the post First World War environment, and this idea that like what's happening in those films, um, and obviously like you know Nosferatu is the big one. But but like the Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, uh, Dr. Mabuse the Gambler, uh, The Man Who Laughs, all those sorts of movies. What is happening in there is something like the collective subconscious working through some stuff. There's all these national anxieties that are simmering and boiling and coming to the surface. And I think that what this movie does, and I think it's doing it intentionally, is that it's, it's kind of playing with some of those ideas where it's this story, and again, it's, it's Germany in 1979. It's the story of this evil thing that exists out of the past. This monstrous thing that like caused the breakdown of society and the dysfunction of society and caused us all to behave like animals. There's a moment where she's walking through the square and they're getting ready to sacrifice a goat um, <laughs> it looks like at one point, like while they're playing on violins <laughs> or fiddling with themselves uh, in the parlance of this podcast. <laughs> and and kind of I like the idea that you get to the end and obviously society's broken down. They, they arrest Van Helsing, the one man who did the heroic thing who did the right thing who killed the monster yeah. and i love that yeah. it, that happens off screen because lucy has defeated him he's curled up in the corner in the fetal position so i love that he just goes and gets a steak and comes <laughs> yeah. down with the steak covered in blood um, <laughs> to make him more dead you know yeah to, to make him even deader um but I, kind of, again, I like that it's kept off that's kept off screen that big moment for van helsing and van helsing's reward for killing this vampire well lucy's reward for killing the vampire is that she's dead van helsing's reward for killing the vampire even more is that like he's probably arrested possibly going to be executed uh, probably going to face criminal charges 
And and at the end of it, you have this idea that they've accomplished nothing because Dracula lives on in Harker. Harker carries this thing inside of him and he carries it forward. And again, you know, you have this idea that the evil that you think you have defeated is not necessarily completely vanquished, but it lives on inside the souls of men. And, you know, Dracula is not something that literally exists. Dracula's castle is not a real place. It is a place that exists in the imaginations of men, in the hearts of men. And so just to shout I think you mentioned this at the start and it, I just can't sing the praise of it enough and I'm going to apologize for this I'm going to mangle this <laughs> Jorg Schmidt Reitwin's uh, cinematography um, is absolutely stunning that closing shot of Harker riding away across the dunes with the wind blowing uh, with I don't know whether it's time lapse or like animation that they do with the clouds um, however they did that kind of special effect where the clouds kind of roam overhead the wind is blowing over the tracks and the sand and there is this sense of like the passage of time he's disappearing into history he will never truly be vanquished he will never truly be gone he will always be out there he will always spread and infect and warp and contaminate and I think that's a really haunting really effective ending for it because you get the paradox of Nosferatu himself talking about how eternal life and life without death is a nightmare he gets to die but he also gets to live on uh, in a way that is, you know, at the risk of sounding very um, pretentious, a literal state of undeath. He is he is both dead and living simultaneously. And yeah. I think that's a very effective way of ending a story like this. I, I love the ending so much. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And it was it's one of the things that kind of stuck with me after the, after I watched the movie. And as I said, immediately I was like, oh, I, I want to revisit this. I want to go back through this again because it's, it's such a, an amazing experience. And um, it's, it's, it's lovely to find a film like this that I hadn't seen before I didn't really have that sort of like you know any any baggage with so um, it's lovely I feel like I've uncovered a, a classic for myself that can, yeah, I'll, I'll go back to quite regularly and I mean the film is kind of widely regarded as a bit of a masterpiece and arguably one of Herzog's greatest works if not his very greatest and sceptical though we should all be of Rotten Tomato scores uh, <laughs> this film holds like a 95% approval rating with an average score of 8.2 out of 10 i mean it's kind of universally beloved you know everyone talks about how great it is and i'm so glad that i found the the time to to, to go to it well i mean there, there was there was if i remember correctly like just uh, if i say if i remember correctly as if i was reading newspapers in 1979 <laughs> um but i i if I remember, yes. like, it, it is, it has retroactively been claimed as a masterpiece. I think it's kind of interesting that, and you guys mentioned this, you guys talked about, like, watching films from the era and talking about, like, watching the same scenes presented in movies from the era, the 1970s Hammer films, stuff like that. There was a sense in contemporary reviews um, of, like, another Dracula film. And again, it's 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 almost ironic now. They're like, what, we're remaking classics now? Like, we're remaking uh, uh, movies? What is the deal with that? Where you have, like, William, <laughs> William Wolfe saying something like, I think it's is it unquestionably Herzog's version is a, is a stylistic triumph? But do we need yet another encounter with the Count? Vincent can be in the New York Times, you know, saying, and again, I love the backhandedness of this. It's like, Mr. Herzog has done what he set out to do, but when you come right down to it, one wonders if it's worth the trouble. Dracula, after all, and this, is, I think, is relevant. I want to hear you guys talk about <laughs> this, because I think this is relevant to this podcast. Dracula, after all, is not a Hamlet or Othello or Macbeth. He's not some profoundly complex character who 
speaks to us in more voices than most of us care to hear. Dracula is Santa Claus turned mean. He's a fairy tale character. Though he represents something vestigially scary, he's not endlessly interesting. That's Mr. Vincent Canby reviewing this movie. Would you guys, the hosts of Vampire Videos, care to respond to Vincent Canby? Well, listen here, Canby, you son of a bitch. I'm coming for you. No, um, I, I disagree in the strongest terms imaginable. I think you might really yes. understand that. Um, I, I think Dracula is a fascinating character, but mostly because he is so open to interpretation and reinterpretation, and he constantly changes. I mean, like I, so far, I think I have loved pretty much every iteration that we've come across for various different reasons. Sometimes because they're so terrible and so just <laughs> off the wall. But like, I, I love that there's a character that, that, that we, that's kind of at the centre of vampire fiction that has that kind of malleability, that, you know, that isn't just one thing and is so life eternal, eh? It's just, he will, it'll never die. He will always be reinvented. He will always be reinterpreted. Um, So no, I, I would uh, I would disagree with that. What were you <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. He's basically that horror version of... James Bond or, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sherlock Holmes uh -huh. is one of those classic characters, isn't it? You just put your stamp on in some way. Um, yeah, we've done lots of Dracula films and, I mean, they all owe a slight debt to Bela Lugosi or Christopher Lee. There's always flashes of those two, I think, in every version that we've seen so far, at least. But, yeah, you can go you can go more animalistic with Dracula, can't you? You can go more sexual, yeah. more predatory. You can have a clever Dracula or a bit of a stupid one. <laughs> you know, all, all kinds. So, yeah, I, I just think this, yeah, I think it's a great character. Yeah, so, yeah, put that in your pipe and smoke it <laughs> so i've got to see you well i mean but again like it is worth noting that yeah can be is one of those figures who is like the old man at the new york times by this point and it's very much shaking yeah, his yeah. fist at the sky <laughs> going kids these days with their rock and roll and their hip-hop <laughs> um I, I do think that there is something kind of interesting in in that response which is like another dracula film because again it is it's 1979 um you've you've kind of i think like even in that year alone leaving aside that you've had kind of things like uh obviously blackula and and that sort of stuff you had like is it john badham's drag Dracula and Stan Dagotti's like Love at First Bite were released within a couple of months of this. So it's like you you are you can kind of see why critics would be like another one of these. <laughs> but I think it, it's very telling that it, it has endured. And it endures by again being both timeless in that it is an archetypal Dracula narrative but also being of its moment inexorably tied to like you look at this and you go this you don't go this is a movie that could have been made at any point in history. You go no this, this is a movie that could only have been made in Europe in 1979 like I love <laughs> yeah, I yeah, love yeah. that Herzog doesn't really make an effort to disguise like the modernity of it obviously the characters are all wearing period costumes and obviously like they hire horses and carriages and nobody's riding a scooter through the movie <laughs> but like there are moments when like when the carriage is coming into town I think bringing Harker back you can see the graffiti on the walls of the castle for example and like Herzog as we've talked about very exacting director if he didn't want that there or if like that was a priority for him he would find a way to like get around that whether it would be like hiring somebody to paint the entire castle a color <laughs> while the uh, public officials were looking the other way or whether it would be like even something in terms of shooting at another entrance or using another angle I like that the movie doesn't seem particularly concerned with it being 1970 like even those sequences where Harker is going up to the castle and he's walking under the waterfall and those incredible shots which 
which again only shot using like handheld cameras getting nice and close and intimate with him but like you have the railings and stuff which yeah. look like those are not railings from the turn no, of the century yeah. those are railings from like post second world war and I love that the movie isn't concerned or worried about that it doesn't think that's going to break your immersion as an audience Um, it it's kind of odd because you're and again maybe this is just my experience as somebody who watches a lot of say American media and a lot of like American period films a lot of British period films but there is that sense of contemporaneousness with this or freedom with this or lack of lack of concern with replicating the past or lack of concern with what a period film looks like that I really love about this movie is that is that fair to say yeah I think that's right I just thought that's how uh, that country was in 1979 to be honest I know they're a bit backward aren't they in, in the constant <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't a it wasn't a period film at all. It was like yeah, I thought it was seventies, late seventies, wasn't it? And no, in Germany, <laughs> horses and carriages. Yeah, just distance myself from those comments, folks. If you want to send any any feedback to Dan Owen, please find him on Twitter. I joke, I joke, I joke. <laughs> the war hit all of us very hard. Look. At us. <laughs> <laughs> We've done obviously a few podcasts, and, and it's uh, very notable, isn't it, Hugh, that there's loads of Draculas uh, in the 70s, but there's hardly any in the 80s, uh, which is strange as well, because as, as you just mentioned, the copyright on Dracula had expired around this time. It, this year? This year. So everyone had, like, the ability to make Dracula, you know, as many times as they wanted to. There was no cost to it. Uh, but they didn't in the 80s. That's a, that's a strange thing, isn't it, to consider. It wasn't until yeah. 1992 with Bram Stoker's Dracula that it kind of came back. Yeah, and it's really noticeable because there's a, a a complete boom of movies in the sort of like the early early to mid eighties of vampire films, and it, you're absolutely right, Dan. Dracula's not really someone that appeals. And like again, as you guys are working your way through the seventies, again, you mentioned the the character of Lucy and how Lucy changes in various portrayals. I mean, part of me is like wondering, and this is just me at a bit of distance, and I want to throw it out to you guys: is that fear of feminism? Is that like you're you're having like is that stage? I think it's second wave feminism kind of emerging, and you're having kind of pushback to it. And like, is the character of Lucy in these various adaptations in conversation with that because we mentioned how like dynamic she is here particularly compared to as you said in a lot of other 70s adaptations where she's a lot more of a conventional victim is is that a play there do you think? Yeah it's uh, yeah definitely in the early 70s we were still getting characters who were you know like the token female obviously along for the adventure and just the men were the ones really holding the reins of the story and they were just there to look pretty and get bitten and turn into a vampire usually yeah definitely I, I don't know really that's a good one to, to consider but yeah by the late 70s maybe things have changed yeah because you look at something like um 79's uh salem's lot and in that film i mean very very much the uh bonnie bedelia in that movie is, is given a lot of agency i mean she's uh, until the final act which is to be discussed in the forecast i've got an issue with the way that she's just unceremoniously like taken off the board <laughs> but for the, the vast majority of that miniseries she is very much one of like the driving forces which i, I really enjoyed and i thought that was quite sort of progressive for a movie of its time but then, but then you look at something like bram stoker's dracula and you look at how lucy is portrayed than that film mm, and she's yeah. just a bit of a sort of like a sex mad nymph in, in the in the opening scenes well I mean like again like the, the the thing about like that that Dracula is that it is consciously regressive and again like, yeah, it, like that's I, true I, yeah. I, I, this is the thing where I'm hesitant to draw like huge cultural markers through the medium of Dracula movies <laughs> charting like charting like pushback and kind of rollback <laughs> and pendulum swings in popular culture through vampire cinema but I do think that maybe there is something there because you do have in the 90s you have this pushback against 
against like 1960s liberalism in American culture. Uh, Forrest Gump is the big example of this, where it's very much like, was like the social liberation of the 1960s a mistake? Did we go too far? Was women's lib and civil rights maybe not worth the hassle that we went to? That's a disturbing <laughs> amount of like 90s pop culture. And you can see it like in things like say that the return to the 50s and stuff like say the Truman Show or Pleasantville, where they're kind of like mediating that. But like the Truman Show is like the best example of that, where it's like, God, imagine how awful it would have been to be part of like the women's liberation movement, the Black Panther movement. Why couldn't you have joined the army and fought in Vietnam and had a good life? <laughs> Um, yeah, which is yeah. a very strange choice. And I do wonder if you're talking about like the regressiveness of Coppola's Dracula, which is a movie that I adore and love and I'm not criticizing in any severe way. But if you're putting it that in context, I do wonder if that is maybe part of that pushback. If there is a sense of, I think given that like Coppola's Dracula is an aesthetically old fashioned and conservative film, it's a film that is very much looking to the past yeah. and trying to recreate the past and trying to like bring the past to life appropriately enough for a vampire movie is that maybe part of what it's doing there whether consciously or not is that portrayal of lucy informed by all that stuff that's bubbling through yeah that's an interesting one yeah and it's certainly something to bear in mind as we go through some of these films i think dan it is an interesting look at things yeah definitely so the rip section for this movie um Klaus Kinski is the first one. On the 23rd of November 1991, he died of a sudden heart attack at the age of 65. Um, obviously a man of a very impressive career, um, but away from the screen, as Hughes mentioned, he was a deeply troubled and unpleasant man. In 1950, he spent three days in a psychiatric hospital after trying to strangle his theatrical sponsor after stalking her. He was diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder, um, and there's lots of terrible stories uh, involving him. The most kind of notorious one is that his daughter, Paula Kinski, claimed in her autobiography that she was sexually abused by her father as a child and her sister uh, Nastasia expressed support for Pola noting that she was always afraid of their father describing him as an unpredictable tyrant yeah. so as we've touched on not a nice man but no. I suppose you've got to separate the art from the artist in a sense when you're watching these kind yeah. of movies so I mean helps that Klaus Kinski is not uh, as recognisable in this role obviously with the makeup yeah, uh, a difficult person to talk about. Um, and also Bruno Ganz, yeah. probably my favourite in this movie, I think. I, I really liked his performance. Uh, so he passed away in 2019, aged 77, mm -hmm. after battling intestinal cancer at his home in Switzerland. From 1996 until his death in 2019, Ganz held the Republic of Austria's Iflung Ring, which passes from actor to actor, mm -hmm. judging that the holder is the most significant and most worthy actor of a German-speaking theatre. So that's quite a quite a thing, isn't it? He held that for a long time. Um, he was honoured with the Order of Merit of Germany, and he was made a Knight of the French Legion d'Honneur. So there you go. Quite a distinguished person. So, um, and a wonderful career as well. Like Again, like it's amazing. Like You mentioned Downfall. He had this whole career afterwards where he appeared in like The Reader, like Unknown. The Counselor, the masterpiece that is The Counselor. <laughs> but like yes. this idea that he had this kind of wonderful second act of his career where he is known internationally. Yeah. Like you see him and you go, that's a guy who will generally be good. One of those guys I'll trust. It's remarkable, I think. Again, it's a thing where he has that incredible vibrant 70s and, and then just gets rediscovered. I say that that's my very parochial English language Irish film watching thing I'm yeah, pretty exactly. sure if you were German he was like your Robert De Niro and never went away <laughs> um, but like as an English language uh, audience member with absolutely no cultural um, taste whatsoever it's kind of amazing that he had that, that kind of two-pronged career from my perspective 
Um, so the the mummies that appear the, in the film's opening credits were on display uh, in the Museo de la Momias, which yeah. translates as the Mummy Museum, which I absolutely <laughs> love. Uh, you can visit that in, in Guanajuato, Mexico. No false advertising there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Herzog and a family visited the museum as a boy and returned as an adult, removing them from their cases and displaying them for the film. I wrote that down. Then I put afterwards. I, I assume he had permission, but no yes, Herzog maybe just maybe broke in one night and decided, right, here's what we're doing. And the, <laughs> when the, the rats arrive in the town, um, you know, there's a scene where you see someone stick their foot through the coffin and get their toe bitten by one of the rats. That was Herzog himself. I, again, I just like to think, not planned. He just decided, ah, I'm going to kick that coffin. <laughs> Herzog said that other than Bram Stoker's novel and uh, F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, didn't really have any experience with the vampire mythology. So I always find that quite interesting. This is his one horror movie, right? Again, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm just an ignorant uh, expert in American and English language film. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in the filmography of Werner Herzog. But uh, this is like his, his again. This is his big movie to this point, his biggest budget movie to this point, his international play at this point. But it's also, I believe, his only out-and-out horror film in his filmography. As far yeah, as I'm yeah, aware, yeah. which is quite impressive. Herzog has said that he would engage in furious arguments with Kinski before they were due to film his scenes in order to kind of rob him of some of his energy. <laughs> he said that's how you get that kind of more subdued performance because <laughs> he was exhausted from arguing with them, which I love. Again, it, that just feels like such a, a great Herzog story, doesn't it? I, I love that, like, the counterpoint to that is, like, Peter Weir directing, is it, like, Robin Williams' A Dead Poet Society um, and, like, Jim Carrey in The Truman Show, where what he would do is he would just spend a day and let them do whatever they wanted <laughs> and then just do the scenes he wanted afterwards, where he learned that you do, what you do is you don't fight, you just let the actor get it all out of their system. There's so I think there's a there's a wide shot in the Truman Show of Jim Carrey mowing the lawn, and Peter Weir's like it took us it took us six hours to get a shot that looked like a human being actually mowing their lawn, as opposed to Jim Carrey like pantomiming with the lawnmower. I, I like that Herzog is just like a much more direct approach. Like, no, we're gonna do this off camera, and we're gonna go ten rounds, and then we're gonna get you in front of us. So as, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Kinski would go on to play Nosferatu again uh, in 1988's Italian language horror Nosferatu a Vigenza. <laughs> which co-starred Donald Pleasance and Christopher Plummer. Mm -hmm. What? How did that? How did that film exist? And I didn't know about it. Sequel, sequel episode, guys. Sequel episode. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> we'll yeah. get you back, Darren. You, you only do Nosferatu <laughs> films, by the way. You realise that. That's apparent. That's my little niche there. Yeah. Part of me is like, you want to complete the trilogy and do like Nosferatu in Venice Beach. Like that's that's <laughs> right. that's the obvious like third third move. Yeah. I mean, apparently, the film's considered a, a bit of a mess, which makes me want to see it even more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, due to Kinski's uh, and. and Again, in quotes here, erratic on set behaviour. Oh. Apparently that led to the, the entire crew leaving the production in protest. So <laughs> they never actually finished filming everything they needed for the film. So they kind of just had to put it together with what they had left. So I can't wait to see that. I'm very excited about that one. <laughs> Kinski is like apparently an uncredited director on this. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, yes. Dan, clear the uh, clear the diary. We need to we need to get this out as soon as possible. Make changes for season five. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, see, I'll see you guys back here in about. Uh, let me just see how long this movie is. I'll see you back here in about uh, an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. I'm all in. I'm all in. <laughs> Let's do the vampire power rankings. So we begin as always with immortality. So I think that's uh, a yeah. given with this Dracula. Yeah, I think he's, so. That... He looks pretty immortal to me. Um, strength and speed of the Count. Not very fast, is he? <laughs> no, it's quite slow approaching the bed, isn't he? 
It takes him a, a good five minutes, it seemed, to walk from the door to the bed. I, I do love that shot of the, um, like, we're talking, again, slow cinema. Like, I love how, like, the the shot of the, the, the Demeter kind of just floating into yeah. the dock, which is, again, one of those, like, again, 1970s cinema verite shots where it's like, uh, Herzog, are we just going to cut to the boat arriving? It's like, no, 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 we're going to get the entire thing just coming into <laughs> shot nice and slowly. <laughs> I like that he takes his time. I re- I actually, and honestly, do love that atmospheric <laughs> shot. But yeah, not not the quickest, not not, not the, the quickest, not no. the fastest getting where he needs to go. Is this not for this uh, Dracula? Okay, uh, sexual magnetism or hypnotism, Dan? That moment you pointed out, where you know, where Jonathan wakes up and he sees a strange man in his room, and he's like, uh, "I'm not, I'm not, not into this." <laughs> um, I think you made your own argument there, Dan. I'm just gonna say it. I think you made your own <laughs> argument there. Mm-hmm. Maybe those teeth have more of an effect than I, than yeah. I thought. We're nibbling, a little bit of love bites. You know what they say about men with big teeth, right? Shape-shifting, any of that going on. The, ba- the bat stuff is symbolic, right? The bat stuff is just like nightmares and visions, right? It's Again, it's that dream logic. Do you actually have a scene, don't you, with uh, Lucy saying, well, she's reading like a book, isn't she? She says he turns into yeah. a wolf and a bat, doesn't she? Y- yeah, that's what I thought, yeah. If Werner mm. Herzog had another $1.4 million, who could tell what would happen in this movie, to be fair? <laughs> so I think in the vampire lore, they, they can do that, but he doesn't demonstrate. And the castle does kind of shapeshift, I guess you could argue, maybe? <laughs> We're going to start doing the castle power rankings, Hugh. You know, see, see, see what the castle can do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, we've got telekinesis yeah. or pyrokinesis. <laughs> Anything going on there? No, no. I, I didn't see any of that. No. No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, flight, power of flight. And uh, no, no. Not, not, more of a no. gentle drifting, more of a floating, really. <laughs> um, well, this one, I think he he does score quite high with this. Uh, control over lesser creatures. Ratastic, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But he's kind of got control of them in a sense, or he at least attracts them. <laughs> I don't think we've talked enough about how much I love that shot of him unloading the ship. Like, it's just such a great <laughs> inclusion in the movie. And I'm not even being ironic, I'm not even being kind of cheesy and goofy. It, it's so eerie and uncanny, and unusual, not what you expect to see in a movie. But I love the shot of Dracula unpacking. <laughs> it's just, it's so good. So yes, rats, definitely control over rats. He imports them without a permit. Um, okay, uh, vulnerabilities then, and ways to be vanquished. So, aversion or weakness in sunlight. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. it certainly gets the job done, doesn't it? Can I read the quote that Lucy says, actually, because it made me laugh? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. She says, um, Should a woman, pure of heart, make him forget the cry of the cock, <laughs> the first light of day will destroy him. <laughs> Have you ever forgotten the cry of the cock? No, um, Just wondering. Again, if we're not speaking euphemistically, then, then no, I've never forgotten the cry of the cock, no. The choice of a beautiful woman making you forget the cry of the cock is quite, a, <laughs> quite an interesting <laughs> lingual choice there. The um, child in me spotted that. <laughs> I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't resist. But yeah, so that's, that's basically thing is it the, the aversion to sunlight which Nosferatu created that by That's the way right, yeah. uh-huh. we discovered that in the 1922 movie when we did that so that wasn't a thing in Dracula was it I like that he kind of curls up on the ball like like an insect you've just sprayed with reeds or something you know <laughs> and he kind of he shrivels up because he's when that the rest of that scene plays out he's just lying dead in the corner like all curled yeah. up on a ball it's, it's a really weird and eerie look I, I really enjoyed that again part part of me is like I just do Nosferatu movies <laughs> and I also just do movies where the vampire is a metaphor for cinema um, where <laughs> <laughs> like we talked about like is it like the shadow of the vampire where like the, the vampire is a metaphor for the camera taking life and granting immortality part of me when i was watching that it's like oh my god 
this creature is like ruined when it is exposed to natural light and i'm like jesus christ the vampire is film isn't it the vampire is film <laughs> yeah but it's interesting that unlike the original he doesn't like fade away does he and, and die immediately it doesn't even burn does he or anything he just he just doesn't like it and just goes to the corner the Hels- <laughs> like that's the thing helsing does helsing kill him or does he just stab him with the stake to be sure because there's a lot of blood on his hands that implies something was still pumping so it's like does the sunlight just incapacitate him like if nothing had happened would he just have had a nap and would he have woken up in a couple hours and been like oh, that was uh, we're not going to talk about that i forgot the call of the cock there oh my god yeah you know you know how it is you're just feeding on a beautiful woman you, you don't hear the call of the cock um i don't know why dracula is suddenly from like the bronx or wherever um, but like van helsing has to go finish him off so is sunlight enough of itself that's that's the question i wonder like i think he was weakened by the sunlight in this movie he wasn't killed by it he's all tuckered out um <laughs> next one is uh, sleeping in coffins native soil or cursed earth yeah, yeah. that's a big one definitely see lots of coffins mm. here holy objects holy water silver anything like that have an effect on him the reaction when he comes into the into the church when he puts the things down he like flinches and stares at the crucifixes and you have the moment when harker after he's fully transformed and by the way small touch that i loved and again part of me is like herzog is aware of the black comedy i love that love that harker escapes by telling the cleaning lady to like tidy up the salt <laughs> that's been sorry that that's been spilled on the ground but he, he tears the cross off himself because it seems to hurt him so there does seem to be some of that i think okay uh stake through the heart that's a definite yes happens at the end with uh van helsing doing that um beheading or burning um no um, you also got invitation only which uh wasn't a factor in this movie was it allergic to garlic i mean there was probably some garlic in that spread so, like it looked like a very nice breakfast spread i do i do love that he has a continental breakfast when jonathan comes down in the morning he may be a monster but he's not a monster you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, and then he got crossing running water so there's lots of canals here Hugh. so oh, yeah i noticed that one he actually does cross the water and he crosses them yeah so not a problem for him yeah so, Darren, um, so what would you give this vampire? What would you give Count Dracula? Uh, fangs out of five. What's your score? I, I think maybe like a three. If this were like 1922 and he were the first vampire on screen, he'd get like a five easily. Hypothetically, if there were some sort of comparable movie that we could be discussing here. But, you know, it's not 1922. Um, so I think that he gets <laughs> he gets a solid like three from me where I, I think that he is kind of pathetic and he is kind of, he's a character that you feel quite sorry for watching him and as you said he doesn't often feel like he's a physical threat I mean look the man for the life of him can't keep track of the cry of the cock um, so I mean that's just an amateur mistake right there but I, I do think that he works quite well metaphorically where it, it's stuff like the plague rats but do you credit him for all the stuff the plague rats do because it does feel a little bit like he just he brings them and it's like you guys do your stuff I'll do my stuff we'll figure it out like does he get credit for like all the hard work that the plague rats do because if he does I'll bump it up to four fangs well, i'm not too sure if, if he's got control of these rats exactly but i don't know how it works it's not really they just seem to follow him around don't they? <laughs> you mean i'm saying like the pied piper yeah <laughs> i mean the, the the movie was missing a scene where he just like like the penguin in batman returns gives a stirring speech <laughs> to all the rats and explains what they're going to do to the local town <laughs> yeah well there's still time for another remake you know <laughs> we can do cgi rats with you know abandon now absolutely absolutely <laughs> 
Yeah, so uh, <laughs> summarising thoughts then, Darren. Yeah, what would you think then to this uh, movie overall? And do you think it should live forever or be staked through the heart? I mean, spoiler, I think it should live forever. Um, <laughs> that's, that's my, you asked me to talk about a vampire movie I wanted to, I love, and I was like, yeah, let's talk about Nosferatu. It would be a bit of a shame if I turned around and was like, no, you know what, let's take it through the heart. <laughs> I, I do honestly think this is a masterpiece. This is a movie that I love and adore. I think it's atmospheric. Um, I think it's beautifully shot. We haven't really talked about the soundtrack oh, uh, yeah. by couple yeah, yeah, yeah. who are like a German musical collective I think founded by the Florian Fickle and it's just got this wonderful atmospheric kind of mournful funereal atmosphere that I think enhances the movie as a whole and of course you have that connection back to German history where they use obviously Wagner at certain points as well that's Rheingold yeah. mm-hmm. and again um, having made terrible terrible puns I feel like I can get away with a little bit of pretension but things <laughs> like you mentioned the water imagery the idea of like Dracula crossing the water and all that sort of stuff but the idea that this movie has of like time being like a river and it comes up a bit during that again philosophy 101 discussion Lucy has with Dracula in her bedroom where it's the idea that you know we can't control fate we can't control time we can't control death and this idea that we have no idea where the river takes us and I like that metaphor of this where it's like nobody in this movie really has any agency they're just kind of drifting through life they're drifting through the world and it's a very interesting way of approaching a, a vampire movie which is you know again normally about this idea of there is this literal manifestation of evil that you have to fight and vanquish and defeat and instead here it's this more corrupting force that contaminates and spreads and infects and even when you vanquish the nominal monster uh, it lives on it, the, its effects are still felt it's collapse of society that the person carries it within themselves and the idea that you know this is something manifested from within rather than infecting from without mm-hmm. uh, which again you know armchair chair psychology German cinema in the 1970s maybe there is some sort of subtext at work there that I am not qualified to unpack um, I just I think this is a, a beautiful brilliant thoughtful film that looks and sounds gorgeous with a set of amazing central performances uh, and an atmosphere that is is that has stayed with me in the years since I first saw it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, and again, we talked about it on the podcast, there are perfectly valid reasons not to want to watch it to do with like the art of the artist, do it like Klaus Kinski, or even as we've discussed the, the methods that were employed by Herzog to make this movie. I'm not saying you have to watch this if you have problems with those. If you have problems with those, that's perfectly legitimate. If you don't want to watch it, that's fine. But if you do, if you are at all curious, it is a beautiful film that is absolutely worth your time. Um, I, I think I still dream about this movie probably the best way I could describe its impact on me where I wake up and I think I still have images of the castle emerging from the fog I still have you know that image of Harker walking through the hills and seeing the mountains in the clouds Uh, that final shot of Harker riding off across the sands of the beach as the wind kind of blows the sand to cover his tracks all that stuff just stays with me on a, a primal emotional level that's almost hard to verbalize or rationalize so this is this this is a movie that I, I unequivocally uh, love uh, and adore. Um, well, I would just like to kind of echo what Darren said, but obviously not as eloquently. Um, so um, I, I'll just say that I love this film, especially because at this stage of doing the podcast, Dan, it's rare that I come across a film that I that I just immediately chimes with me. I just can immediately on its level and I'm vibing with everything that it's doing. Um, it's, and especially when 
it comes so unexpectedly because not that I wasn't looking forward to watching this film, but you know, it's, it's, it's another a, Dracula film. Exactly. And it's another Dracula. <laughs> and, and I went into it with that in my head. That was, that was kind of my, my mindset before I put it on. And then to be completely blown away by it, like, to the extent in which it's been a long time since I've watched the same film, Two Nights Running, um, to watch the return to it the second night, I just thought, yeah, this, this is, this is, um, something of a masterpiece. I think I need to sit with it longer. Um, cause obviously I only have just watched it and this is a, this is a film I look forward to revisiting a few times, uh, over the next couple of years to see what, I, where I, I, I kind of land on in terms of like you know my favorite vampire films but just having seen it twice i mean it, it's already kind of creeping into the top 10 and wow. maybe, maybe actually you know quite high up that list so yeah for, for me uh, like this was this was a real treat should live forever and again this is a film i, I can already feel that i'll be telling a lot of my like friends and colleagues about that like, yeah this is a this is a film worth seeking out you need to need to see this got to agree with you too yeah i mean like you this is my first experience of the movie and i, I really enjoyed it it's a good example of what a remake should be really because it kind of takes what works about the original uh, and, and improves on it in some ways and embellishes other things you know just it just works isn't it you know i know things have changed you know vastly since 1922 but it's just a good example of taking the familiar story and just approaching it in a slightly different way but in a way that honours the original so I mean I'd rather watch this than the original because I, I think it just, it just works better for a modern audience doesn't yeah. it but I also like how like Darren mentioned that there is a, a feeling to this one that the original had where the original being silent always reminded me of a nightmare like I said in the episode uh, in your dreams I don't often remember sound so much for me anyway so the silent film reminded me of like a nightmare that I was kind of watching and this film has that dreamlike quality you know, so so it kind of worked as well on, on that level, and just that kind of reminded me of the original as well. How it's got that dreamlike feel, like a very ethereal feeling, isn't it, to a lot of the scenes? So yeah, great film. Uh, I would say Live Forever, definitely. Can I just say I'm, I'm very glad that you both love it. I was on a podcast recently where I recommended a movie that one of the hosts absolutely loathed, and I felt <laughs> really bad about it. So I'm really glad that when I was like, "Let's talk about Nosferatu the Vampire," you're both like, "Good movie, good movie, good movie." I wanted on the record that I did not recommend Nosferatu in Venice. <laughs> I just want that one on the record before we talk about the movie. We might have to insist that you come back to Darren for that. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I would be honoured. Well, the sound of that magnificent cock means that it's time for Dan and I to scrabble back to our earth-filled luxury black coffins before the sun vanquishes us forever. Or gives you a nice news, or puts you down for a nice news, one or the other. I'd like to thank our guest, Darren Mitty, for coming along to share his thoughts. Uh, Darren, can you let our listeners know what you're up to right now, where they can find you? You can follow me um, at Twitter, Darren underscore Mooney. Um, I co-host a podcast with my good friend Andrew Quinn called The 250, where we sometimes look at the top 250 movies of all time, and we occasionally do something crazy like talk about all of the Chucky movies. <laughs> Um, because Andrew had never seen them and wanted to discuss them. Um, so you can find us there. And yeah, so you can talk, join us there. I also write at The Escapist, which is a pop culture website. Uh, I do a bunch of columns there. Monday and Friday, I do In the Frame, which looks at kind of geek culture. On Wednesdays, I do a, pop, a section called Out of Focus, where I look at things maybe a little bit more niche. Uh, and I also do a video series with the wonderful Omar Ahmed doing the video editing on us, uh, and occasionally Matt J. Lachlan as well. In the Frame, we talk about wonderful geeky stuff, like, you know, The Last of Us recently, and or, um, you know, Avatar, all that sort of stuff. So you can give me a quick google I'll, I'll turn up anywhere um so give me a shout uh, yeah come yell at me on twitter about my bad taste in movies 
Darren underscore Mooney. <laughs> so why not follow us as well at Vamp Videos on Twitter for updates and teasers of upcoming episodes. Our Ko-fi page is where you can support us financially forward slash Vampire Videos. Please leave a donation of any size, but only if you can afford it. Yep, and you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, basically anywhere podcasts can be found. And if you could leave us a rating or review if you haven't already, that'd be very much appreciated. Vampire Videos is part of the We Made This Podcast Network, so stay tuned for previews of other shows you may like to subscribe to. We'll be back next week for more fiendish fun but until next time thanks for listening hello and this is chucky vision on the we made this network the podcast for all things chucky i'm dev elson and i'm mark adams we're two queer podcasters who love bloody horror camp comedy gay romance and referencing icons like Freddy, Jason and Britney. The Chucky films and new TV show deliver all of that and there is still so much more to cover. So if you want to play, find Chucky Vision on Twitter at Chucky Vision and on all good podcast providers. And yes, the title is a chuckle vision pun. Because why not? Hello, and this is Frame to Frame, part of the We Made This Podcast Network. We are a podcast that take two seemingly unconnected films and slam them together with the most obscure theme that we can find. I'm Andy Williams. And I'm Sean Wilson. And every Wednesday, you'll be able to find out a little bit more about the different themes and different films that we look into with insights such as this on the Polar Express. I'd forgotten about the, the random hot chocolate song. Not that Steven one. Steven Tyler singing from Aerosmith. I was trying to think, who is that? I was oh, it's Steven Tyler. Right, okay. <laughs> Did the math not give it away? Come on. Well, I mean, to be honest, they've all got that same problem with them. So I can't really recognise it. They've all been Steven Tyler through the, through the medium of performance catch it. So what they did was they accidentally left the Steven Tyler filter on. Yeah, 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 they did. There is no such thing as a wrong reason to laugh at Moonfall. Legitimately, I had so much fun. And I remember telling you at the time, on our Roundup of the Year podcast, we will be doing Moonfall. And you yeah, said, and you remember oh, my no, face. We won't. Yeah, I mean, how crestfallen <laughs> I was. And I said, oh, yes, we will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, never mind Moonfall. Crestfallen is what I would call it. You know, the very bothersome thing on Ross and Tomatoes that you cited about, the idea that there is somehow a difference between the way critics see movies and audiences see movies. Well, yes, but critics watch films as an audience. So critics are an audience. So that's a complete fatuous thing. The reason critics get into criticism is because they love it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's all that that it is. The reason we do this podcast is because we love yeah. Be sure to check your podcast app of choice every Wednesday to find new episodes. You'll be able to like, subscribe, and find us on social media at Frame to Frame Pod. 